0: I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... We need someone to tell the stories of what's happening in our communities. A lot of my job is working on local politics and just talking to people about things that are going on, and a lot of my institutional knowledge comes from being a kid reading the Washington Post when it was a foot thick.
1: Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. What's Working in Washington? I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today, we're with Dan Reed. Dan is the regional policy director for a group called Greater, Greater Washington. That's no echo. They mean making Greater Washington, the DMV as we sometimes call it, greater. We talk about all sorts of issues like why are the buildings stopped at certain heights? How are crime stats mattering to people that want to move here? What sports and entertainment venues are growing? Why does the red line versus the green line versus metro? Why do people build buildings around those metro stops? Uh, It's an easy answer, but sometimes a little different than you thought. And lastly, perhaps most importantly to me, what vehicles besides that metro car are going to be important for growing this region? The answer, spoiler alert, a bus. That's right, a bus. It's Dan Reed. Here's our conversation. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Greater Greater Washington, founded by... A local who made some dough and decided to pursue his passion on this. What's what's the background? Uh, that's right. So in 2008, David Alpert,
0: who is an ex-Googler, uh, was retired at a young age and wanted to find opportunities to give back to his community. At the time, there was this burgeoning network of local blogs in the D.C. area. Many of them were neighborhood-focused. I had a local blog myself that I started in 2006 about Silver Spring, where I grew up. And there weren't a lot of regionally-focused blogs at the time, and so that is the gap David tried to fill in 2008. It became a sort of group effort after that with a number of volunteer contributors. I started as one in 2009 when I was still in college, and over the past 15 years, it has grown into a full-fledged online publication, which publishes daily, as well as an advocacy organization that works on housing and transportation issues across the D.C. metropolitan area. So that includes Maryland and Virginia.
1: So it's a sort of a C3 and a C4, as they say here in the D.C. area? We're working on exactly that, yes. Yeah. The <laughs> uh, the, the differentiation is very important to lawyers. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm involved with a few as well. So so Silver Spring, you're a Silver Spring native, born and raised? Uh, that's correct. Right. I was born at Providence Hospital in D.C., and I've lived in Silver Spring almost all of my life. Excellent. And uh, you're a Terp, Fear the Turtle, correct? That's right. Congratulations, uh, University of Maryland men's basketball team's looking pretty darn good this year, but who's to say? Anyway, um, Silver Spring, besides yourself, Dan Reed, has some amazing uh, natives, Dave Chappelle, and who, from, uh, from Seinfeld? Oh, uh, uh, are you thinking of Lane Louis-Dreyfus? Yes. Oh, I didn't know it? that. Uh, yeah, there I you could... go, we, see it's fresh data, <laughs> she's from Silver Spring.
0: You know, I've got my list prepared, you know, uh, Louis Black, uh, Ben Lewis Stein, Connie Black. Chung, Goldie Hawn,
1: Louis Black, Ben Stein, Connie Chung, Goldie Hawn, the list goes on and on. What is it about Silver Spring? It's very large depending on how you define it. So just
0: statistically we we collect a lot of people in it. Uh, I think we have really strong public schools, which means we produce some really talented folks. We also have I think a strong sort of local culture around like arts and entertainment and and the the Creative Arts, (laughs) you know, I lived on a street with three Pulitzer Prize winners, for example. Wow. And I I think that just creates a culture in which people are inclined to do things and make things.
1: Well, I think Silver Spring, to our listeners uh, who aren't familiar with the area, has been, I would argue, both a success story and in some ways a cautionary tale for revitalizing, quote air quotes now, downtown Silver Spring with its theater multiplex, uh, some parks and stuff like that. As a native, what what would you say are the success stories and some of the challenges downtown Silver Spring has had, and and are you seeing similar stories around D.C.? So I I grew up in downtown Silver Spring.
0: Uh, My mom and I moved there when I was three, and— The reason she wanted to move there is she said it was quiet, right? Mm. There wasn't a lot going on. It was affordable and there wasn't a whole lot to do, which was a great place to raise a kid, right? Got it. And at the time, you know, there were a lot of boarded up buildings and not a lot of places to go. And we did most of our shopping in Bethesda or Rockville, you know, the areas where there's a lot of shopping centers and stuff. Yeah. And in the past 20 years, there's been a massive amount of public investment from Montgomery County and the state of Maryland. That's attracted a lot of private investment. The Discovery Channel had their headquarters in Silver Spring until yep. a couple of years ago. Uh, the AFI, American Film Institute, has their their prime, their one independent movie theater in the country is located in Silver Spring. And in many ways, it is a success story of not just urban revitalization, but also a thing we see a lot in the D.C. area and that the D.C. area is really successful at, which is called transit-oriented development, or literally just putting stuff next to the train so that people will take the train. Right. In many ways, Silver Spring is also kind of a victim of its own success. Like It worked really well. It's a place that people really want to spend time in and ultimately live. And so it's become really expensive in part because there's just not enough of it to go around. There's just not enough houses in Silver Spring. Even as it has grown significantly
1: over the past 20 years, there is still not enough room for all the people who want to live here. So you also, on your website, um, and once again, we're talking with Dan Reed. He's a regional policy director for Greater, Greater Washington. Uh, You talk about an area, is it Acoqueque? But it's a very interesting modern architecture, which seems like a little hidden gem. You must, as a native, and what you do for a living, you must know some great hidden gems in Washington, D.C. You must be talking about a Moyon
0: Reserve, which is this really innovative neighborhood built in the 1950s. It is literally inside a national park. It it straddles the line between Prince George's and Charles Counties. And it started as a way to preserve uh, the viewshed from Mount Vernon across the river, but it became this community of creative types who wanted to build really interesting modern homes in a completely preserved natural environment. You couldn't build a house in less than five acres there. And it is a really remarkable community and just a, a cool place to visit yeah. because it is, after all, a park.
1: Yeah. Well, I grew up in a Bauhaus, so I'm, I'm very much, as a young person, thought that modern – very angular architecture was particularly appealing. And the, sh- the shots I saw of Moyon Preserve, I was like, that's home. I mean, very, very 50s, 60s. I think in your website, you said that Frank Sinatra would feel at home there from the timing. Um, is part of your job sort of finding things like that and, and uncovering them and describing them? A little bit. You know, I've done a lot of freelance writing throughout my career. Uh, you know, I wrote about
0: Moyon as part of a column I wrote for Washingtonian called Cityscape uh, for four years. That's part of my job is to find cool things and share them with people. And I think that sort of fits into the broader mission of like celebrating this awesome place that we live in and hopefully making the case for
1: why we should make it so more people can come live here and make it even better. Mazel tov. Dan Reed, he's our guest today here on What's Working in Washington. Dan is the Regional Policy Director for Greater, Greater Washington. So speaking of Greater Washington or the DMV as we lovingly uh, sometimes call it, Sometimes I'm sure all of us are frustrated by the collision between what Montgomery County thinks is right for it versus the district versus the state of Maryland and the governor, his or her, uh, I guess there's never been a female governor. And then, of course, the Commonwealth of Virginia. Where do you see collisions like that being either uh, a challenge or productive?
0: You know, honestly, we're we're lucky in some ways because you know most things in the D.C. area happen at the county level. You go to other parts of the country, like Philadelphia or New York or what have you, and everything's down to, like the township or the village level. So you have like hundreds of little tiny municipalities all fighting with each other. So in some ways, we, we've kind of got it easy with just you know handful of counties, right, and states. Uh, at the same time, uh, it's a challenge because. Every county has slightly different interests and slightly different culture and slightly different goals, right? You know, the ongoing debate in Montgomery County is why aren't we more economically competitive like Virginia? And some of that might be reality. A lot of that is, is I think, perception, you know, folks looking across the river and wondering, well, why aren't we like Virginia and trying to figure out what the special sauce is? The grass is
1: always greener. Exactly. Well, to that end, um, forgive me for interrupting. You were on, <laughs> and we were on a, good, a good rant. I was engaged in the Montgomery County Economic Development Council. They had sort of an ad hoc group, exactly as you suggest. We were like, why is, be it Terry McAuliffe or whoever is is now with, uh, with the new governor, why, why why is Northern Virginia, why is NOVA getting corporate headquarters, blah, 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 and why not us? What has your research or your experience shown to be the answer to that question, or is there an easy one?
0: I'm not sure if there is an easy answer to the question, I I've always joked that Montgomery County and, and Northern Virginia are kind of two different answers to the same question. Yeah, right. They're both big, prosperous-ish, very increasingly diverse suburban places. And for the strengths that Fairfax County has, it has a lot of big corporate headquarters. For example, Montgomery County, we have a much better park system. Uh, we are actually building more houses than Fairfax County right now. Ironically, mm-hmm. uh, there are probably things we could each do better. But I am uh, not in the business of playing them against each other as a regional policy director now. Right.
1: Your job is to coordinate as opposed to conflict. That's
0: right. I yeah. don't have a horse in this game, except Maryland is where I live and grew up in
1: love. Got it. But it was interesting for me to see, obviously, the Amazon A2 uh, and its impact on uh, that part of Virginia directly across or, or right around National Airport. And then, of course, when you look at Montgomery County with the hospitality headquarters there, uh, there I think like 60% of the market capitalization on the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange of hospitality companies is based in Montgomery County. Some incredible concentration there, along with cyber and some of the other features, uh, 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 quantum computing and stuff that we have both in Montgomery and then with the University of Maryland. So the assets are all there. My c- conclusion, this is a—I'm uh, lecturing my guest. I apologize. My conclusion was— we're all doing great. Why are we getting jealous about and a kind of a an, an arena that we that that's sort of sharing the wealth everywhere? Well, part of the challenge
0: is we're not sharing the wealth everywhere, right? Because tax okay. dollars raised in Virginia do not cross the river, yeah. uh, For example, and within our region, we still have pockets of deep poverty and inequality, right? You know, yeah. the missing part of this conversation is Prince George's County, which, despite being in this region with so much wealth and so much affluence, has continued. Uh, not to get their fair share of it, despite uh, having a lot of the same things that we talk about are great about Montgomery and and Northern Virginia, right? Uh, Prince George's has the University of Maryland, the state of University. It has highways. It has 15 metro stations and yet has not attracted as much investment
1: as its neighbors. So metro stations, um, to your point earlier on uh, construction, residential, commercial around the spots – you also written about the bus as being the vehicle of the future, uh, making, uh, I think, appropriate fun, fun of the idea of electric cars and, and Elon Musk. What is it about bus lines that made you so convinced of its of its worth and its future? Well,
0: if you look at the construction of the Silver Line, which was originally proposed 50 years ago, you know, they, they built a station under Dulles Airport. You can't Airport, rush these things, Dan. Come on. Right? Uh, whereas <laughs> – the bus is a lot easier to implement, right? You know, Arlington and Alexandria wanted to build what's called a rapid bus line, which is like the bus gets its own lane and special stations, and they did that in just a handful of years. right? It's called MetroWay and it's running right now. And it is much faster to roll out bus service in general. It's more affordable. And in doing so, we can provide people with the thing that they need, which is a way to get where they're going now and not in 50 years. And so there's so much more we could do to invest in better, faster, more reliable bus
1: service. So the Silver Line, <clears throat> I just flew out of Dulles Airport for a business trip. I drove and parked in the new lot they built for the metro stop there, the, you know, the terminal, mm-hmm. final terminal stop. Um, it's like 52, it's almost like an hour ride from parts of the Red Line. So I'm wondering, do you think the Silver Line will be judged a success, even though it takes so long to get out there?
0: It takes time. I mean, we can't undercount the hassle, right, of trying to get a ride to the airport or figuring out a $100 Uber or something like that. And, you know, for people in other parts of the region, it is kind of a hike to get to Dallas. I I don't know if I I would take it from my house in Silver Spring, but if
1: you live on the Silver Line, if you're in Northern Virginia, it could be a real game changer. Fair enough. Fair enough. Our guest is Dan Reed. Dan is the regional policy director or Greater Greater Washington. We're talking about all the things that make Greater Washington great, or the challenges that we face as we grow. We'll have more with our conversation after this. Every week on What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. It's What's Working in Washington, and we are once again excited to have as our guest today Dan Reed. Dan is the Regional Policy Director for Greater Greater Washington and with a show named "What's Working in Washington," what better person to have than somebody who works with Greater Greater Washington, trying to make Greater Washington the whole DMB area, greater? Dan, once again, thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here. So, one of the topics, features of what I've seen that you've written on the on the web and in other arenas is about the height of buildings in the district. And I know, um, I guess, probably since you know, like. Alexander Hamilton, uh, the idea of having a limit for height in, in, in district buildings has been an issue for builders, an issue for residents, an issue for the federal government and how it splays out in its uh, in its office space, et cetera, et cetera. Can you tell our listeners what the history is as you know it, kind of where the, the ban of taller buildings stands and what your prediction for the future is? So the myth is that no building can be, I think, taller than the Washington
0: Monument or the Capitol Dome. But in reality, uh, building heights are set based on the width of the street that they're mm-hmm. on. Yep. So the wider the street, the taller the building. Hence, that's why most of the tall buildings are downtown, for example. And part of the reason was to, you know, for, for safety and fire safety concerns, right? And part of the reason was, you know, intentional to create a certain open, airy feel around the city and we're seeing, you know, especially in the past few years as the city has become more popular, more people have come here, that it is in many ways potentially a barrier uh, to the city's vitality, right? There's just not enough room to put stuff because we've said buildings can only be so tall. And it's funny because the tallest building in the region now is in Roslyn. There's an observation deck at the top called The View. And I went there over the summer and it's, it's wild to, to stand in this building that is 400 feet tall, which is like a nothing burger in so many cities around the U.S. and just stare out and just be like right. <laughs>
1: down at at the city across the river, you know? Yeah, I've been to that same spot. It's amazing. It's, it's revelatory. You're like, holy moly. But as you know, in New York and others, they sell air rights. So a smaller mm-hmm. building can effectively make an economic decision <clears throat> to pass along. Is that illegal in D.C. or do you see someday it being made legal if it's not? To be clear, I'm not honestly sure. Yeah, because that's been a I think it's been a feature of New York City. That some hate, some find incredibly rewarding. And I don't know when the last time you were in New York, but they have these new sliver uh, residential mm-hmm. buildings that are just staggeringly tall and skinny. They look like toothpicks. I don't know how the hell they, how they stand they, they stand up. I doubt that's in D.C.'s future, but I got to believe at some point, and maybe you're seeing this or you're covering it, that there will be maybe not a 400-foot building like in Roslyn, but a 30- or a 35-story Residential, mixed use, even office buildings somewhere in downtown. What, what's your prediction? Of what year that will happen?
0: <laughs> uh, We're going to hold you to it. Well, Dan.
1: Let's be conservative. Let's say twenty
0: fifty, right? You know, there there have been conversations about you know incremental increases in height, particularly downtown, because you know the the top of the building is like where the the air handlers go, right? You know, why not let people create occupiable space there or create a bonus for residential space, and especially as downtown DC has lost so many. Uh, employees and businesses and activity due to the pandemic, there's this conversation now about how do we make downtown D.C. vibrant again. Part of that conversation has been why isn't it time to reintroduce like housing and other uses to parts of downtown where nobody lives? And a height limit conversation kind of goes hand in hand with that, right? Because if you are talking about refurbishing some
1: of these older buildings, then
0: why can't they be a little bit taller, you know?
1: So COVID-19 obviously is has to be part of every conversation about a city's life, what are some things you saw that happened to the district that COVID-19 was you know, pretty much responsible for? And if negative, how are you seeing the city respond and recover?
0: I think the most remarkable shift that I saw during COVID, and it's one that we're, we're still seeing to some extent now, is the sort of what are called open streets or shared streets, where both in D.C. and other jurisdictions around the region, streets were uh, closed off to cars and opened up for uh, recreation, or for gathering, or for outdoor dining, uh, so that people could gather outside safely, right? We've seen this in uh, Rock Creek Park, where they closed portions of Beach Drive to car traffic, and now it'll be permanent, I believe, in Montgomery County, closed number of roads through parks, like our section of Beach Drive, or Sago Creek Parkway, which is near my house, to, to car traffic. And that's been really successful at showing not just We don't necessarily need all of this space for cars, but that there really is a hunger for more and higher quality public open space for people to just be outside with one another. And thankfully, that's something we're seeing persist.
1: What's your sense of office, of residency? I mean, it seems like it just took a bite out of everybody's square footage. How many people showed up to a desk, how many days, metro ridership. Is there a path back to the old numbers or you think we're sort of always going to be different now? You know, honestly, I think one day we might
0: eventually get back there, but it's going to take a very long time for, for habits to change. You know, I, I personally enjoy working from home, but after two years of the pandemic, when at my prior job, we were allowed to go back to the office. I was chomping at the bit, you know, I would go in three, four, five days a week if I could. And there were days when I was the only person on the floor. Right. And I loved it. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, our office is in a, a co-working space in the Navy Yard. And I go one day a week. We have all of our meetings downtown, which is nice because I get to see all my co-workers. And it is kind of nice to, like, play, play at a commute for, like, a day, right? You know, the Green Line is basically back to normal. You know, it's It's busy, standing room only, during rush hour. It feels very normal, but for the one day a
1: week that I do it. <laughs> Interesting. I, I ride the red line more sparsely than I used to. I'm not sure I've seen back to the old days, but perhaps the trend, as you say, is slow and building. So let's talk about perception of the district, uh, the DMV, percep- perception of the greater Washington area. We talked earlier, uh, you and I did off air, about uh, Nextdoor and mm-hmm. these other kind of community newsy places. Um, I have been su- – I've successfully joined various places on Nextdoor by spoofing different addresses and stuff, <laughs> which they probably hate. But it's just incredible to me how Nextdoor has turned into almost like a crime rap sheet that everybody's posting how, you know, their neighbor's car was busted into or they had a package stolen off their front desk, their, their, their front porch. Um do you think that the that the lack of of a general media product besides The Washington Post has caused these sort of sharing platforms to over over index on our perception of the negative side of city dwelling? I think so. You know, thankfully, I'm
0: I'm not on Nextdoor and I was on my neighborhood and I I got off of that, too. It's a terrible place. But there is a total vacuum of information about what's happening in your neighborhood and the people who fill it are you know, oftentimes your nosy neighbor who is in everybody's business, right? And what they might be paying attention to is who's doing what they shouldn't be doing, right? And so the result is your next door or listserv is filled
1: with uh, crime reports. Well, even more than crime reports, it's like, you know, if if this is your son driving this black Subaru home from high school, he's a bad person. You should, it's like sort of family family counseling in real time. (laughs) I'm not sure where it goes. I just, I find it, I mean, maybe you and I both agree, it seems like a awful waste of time. And uh, forgive the term, a lot of Yentas just hanging around on, on the site, uh, uh, spilling. But to that point, let's go to media vehicles in general. You and I were chatting earlier about uh, the Post. So the Washington Post, I would argue, along with the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, which are the three national brands that have survived the, the death of, of, of coverage. But- um, my hometown newspaper, The Baltimore Sun, we touched on it, and other local media products, be they be mm-hmm. they paper-based or even web-based. It's just tough to make a business of it. What's your sense of how much of a lack of media vehicles represents a challenge to urban or or greater Washington living?
0: It's hard. We need someone to tell the stories of what's happening in our communities, right? A lot of my job is working on local politics and just talking to people about things that are going on. And a lot of my institutional knowledge comes from being a kid reading The Washington Post when it was a foot thick and laying it out Saturday morning and every week just getting a little piece of, like, the culture of this place, right? And we don't have that anymore. And there's something lost in that. In terms of our shared understanding of what our community is and what's happening, and it also makes our local politics really fraught because people literally just don't understand what's happening, which is bad. It's bad. Right? I was say, <laughs> there's Not a lot
1: of words other than that, and it's not just it's it's to me it's it's the school board meeting. I mean, it's all of the machinery that if you live in Silver Spring represents what it's like to be in Silver Spring. If you live mm-hmm. in Bethesda, if you if you live in Rockville, if you live you know in in Frederick, I don't care. We all have machinery around our residence or even our place of business. And that machinery matters and there just seems to be no well, I'm I'm on my on my soapbox. <laughs> Let let's get to sports entertainment and other venues. You know, from Audi Park, consolidation of ownership by my old colleague Ted Leonsis for a bunch of teams. Maybe Dan Snyder exits stage left. Hooray. What's your sense of the vitality of sports and entertainment as a core of the Greater Washington experience? I am absolutely not the person to ask about sports, but I will tell you, as
0: someone who likes to sit in a place uh, there are a lot of places to sit in a place and watch sports. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you go. With an adult beverage,
1: maybe served.
0: That's right. Yeah. It's never been a better
1: time for sitting in a place and watching sports. There you go. Um, <laughs> and sometimes that sitting happens in a stadium or in or an, 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 another venue. So betting, uh, we have a few minutes left here. Have you been to the betting the betting facility built into downtown? I've been morbidly curious about it. You know, I've walked by, but I'm not. you uh, got to go in. I'm tell- Dan, I'm not joking. you got to go in and see what it's like. Is it's, there food? Sorry? Is there food? There's very good food. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, and there's plenty of places to sit and watch sports going on. But the idea of hundreds of millions of dollars changing hands in the betting venue, this is not going to go away. Um, so I think for every major metropolitan area with a major team, it's going to be a big deal. Listen, Dan Reed, who is the uh, regional policy director for Greater Greater Washington, has been our guest today. We ask every person on the show at the end, um, and you're actually a fascinating example of this. If you could wave a magic wand, if you were in charge of everything on the planet— uh, for some period of time, what would you start doing, happening, or what would you stop happening that you think is detrimental? I would
0: uh, end breed-specific legislation. It's uh, laws, whether it's for insurance companies or landlords or just entire cities or counties where you can't have certain kinds of dogs because of the breed they are. I I adopted a pit bull during the pandemic, and he's just the best, sweetest, cuddliest dog ever, and. There are hundreds of thousands of dogs in this region uh, languishing in shelters and being put down because they can't get adopted out. This specifically is in Prince George's County, which they are banned in the entire county, uh, and it's it's bad for dogs. It is bad for families because it breaks up families. Your dog could be taken from you. You may have trouble finding housing. Uh, when I was looking for an apartment a little while ago, I found there were two apartment complexes in Montgomery County that would allow me to live with my dog, and. It, it it distracts from the actually important work of getting dangerous dogs off the streets because you know, no breed is inherently dangerous. So that that is one thing I would change. I would make it a better, safer place for pit
1: bulls. I have never heard about that. There's breeds, <laughs> say it again, breed-specific what? Breed-specific legislation. Wow. And I assume pit bulls are one of the targets of that. They
0: are often the only target, though. Yeah. Uh, other breeds, you know, Rottweilers, Dobermans,
1: German Shepherds, often fall into that too. Well, no, no disrespect meant, but cuddly and Pitbull tend not to coexist. That's that's off brand for a Pitbull. But to your point, <laughs> it's not inherent that a Pitbull acts that way. Is is the, is your conclusion? That's right. You know, they were uh, raised
0: to be family dogs, and for uh, much of the 20th century, had the reputation of nanny dogs because they
1: were so good with kids. Wow. Yeah. Live and learn. Dan Reed, excellent. Good, 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 uh, good pull on that. Dan Reed's been our guest today. He's the regional policy director for Greater, Greater Washington. We've talked about the, the district, the M and the V, and what it's going to take to make it a greater place here in the Greater Washington area. Dan, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by The Sunbeam. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.